From Studio A in Podcast Village, Upper Georgetown, Washington, D.C., this is the best political talk show you've never heard of. It's Backroom Politics with your host and moderator, Justin Russell. Hello out there in Radioland. As I should say, coming back from the islands, aloha, Radioland. Uh, it is the best political talk show you've never heard of. It is Backroom Politics. I'm here with, as we are every episode, we've got uh, to my left, he is the former Undersecretary of Commerce for International Development. He is the one we know as Alan Moore. Hello, Alan. Uh, hello, Justin. Joining us from Boca del Vista, South Florida, checking in. He's a retired one-star admiral from your United States Navy. He is the one we know as Admiral Ken Carradine. Hello, Admiral Ken. Greetings from Boca, my friend. Greetings uh, from Boca. And uh, Rob, the engineer, keeping us honest behind the glass. Hello, and, Justin. And, and actually, you know, we got to introduce somebody. So uh, Audrey Howerton will always be our, our producer emeritus, uh, and she continues to reside someplace upstate at a spa location in Saratoga Springs. But uh, coming back to us, it's like a boomerang child. Uh, Eric Thomas, our producer, is back in studio. He's working behind the glass. Hello, Justin. Yeah, you know, thank you for coming back. We we love having you again. Uh, anyway, he, so here, funny thing about Eric. Eric was a photojournalist up at the Washington Post and got one of the really famous front the, page the New York New York, Post. New York Post. What did I say? Washington Post. You know, he was at the New York Post. If he was at the Washington Post, he'd probably still be there. Anyway, uh, let's get going. There's there's a ton of stuff we got to talk about. If you haven't noticed, the the relationship at the opposite ends of Pennsylvania Avenue have been at best frigid, at worst just a nightmare. Uh, there are more there You could literally wallpaper Pennsylvania Avenue between the Capitol building and the White House with all the subpoenas flying out of Capitol Hill. And it's not just Democrats. Uh, you've got subpoenas going to Donald Trump Jr. Uh, uh, coming out of the Republican-led Senate Intelligence Committee wondering about what was happening with uh, some of these Russia meetings. But I will tell you, it has created a spy versus spy, a very antagonistic relationship between the legislative branch and the executive branch. Uh, we are we are looking at a situation where all of a sudden uh, the new happy uh, drinking word, whenever you hear this word, you take a shot, is executive privilege. Executive privilege is being thrown around quite a bit in Washington. The question is, uh, I mean, the, the question I have for you, and I'll start off with you, Alan, is we've seen toxic environments between uh, the executive and legislative branches. This has got to be one of the hottest, most uh, difficult relationships that we've seen between the two branches of government. Uh they're in a confrontation. Um, uh, House Judiciary Chairman Jerry Nadler likes to call it a constitutional crisis. Um, Is it? I, no, I don't think so. It, it's not. It's not beanbag. Um, there is a serious confrontation going on. Constitutional authorities are part of what they're arguing about. Ultimately, unless they can come to an agreement, and that's possible, but at the point we're at, probably unlikely, because that would mean some kind of capitulation by one side, and they've dug themselves in. That just means 
it will go to the courts and the courts will make some decisions sometime in the months or years ahead. Um, it's it's not on a fast track to resolution. In the meantime, the, the, the work of government does go on in fits and starts. Um, we're about to, it looks like, I mean, get, you... get, a, get a spending deal on emergency funding, which has been held up uh, in, res- in response to disasters. That's, that's an important piece of business. It, it's very close now, all of a sudden, to getting resolved. That requires the Congress coming together with the White House. I'm not saying everything's all rosy. That it, that's emergency stuff. It usually gets done faster. But is Admiral Kenley ask you this? You know, we we knew we knew the president was going to be not exactly the easiest human being in Washington D.C. to deal with or to make a, or to make some sort of arrangement with. But it, it, it strikes me that that some of this. The blame goes to the Dems that this is self-inflicted, that their approach has been um, overtly antagonistic. It, it, it's, it's. I'm not. I can't even put my finger on the right word, but that's it seems the word doesn't. That's because the word doesn't exist, and I, I, I guess I, I disagree with you wholeheartedly. Why is that? Uh, well, I, you know, I, I think that, you know, a lot of us, and and um, and I'm, and I'm not, I'm not calling myself a Democrat or anything like that, but I think just a, you're a lot of, of just your plain, ordinary, working-class, everyday Americans have basically uh, work, been working on the impression that um, when it came time for the president to do something that he was constitutionally bound to do, he would do that. And um, and notwithstanding, um, when when the finance committee uh, of the House asked for him to turn over his his tax returns by law, they have a uh, the right to do that. He basically gave him the big fat finger. So I think that the president has you know been empowered by the outcome of the Mueller report, and I think he's decided just to go mitts off and just say, you know what, my way or the highway, screw you, I'm going to do what I want to do. And I don't know that any politician, you know, if if this was going on in the opposite party, would behave any differently than the Democrats are doing. You know me, I, I I'm going to throw the penalty flag wherever the penalty flag needs to go. Do do I think that um, do I think that um, people calling for the president uh, and, the, and Democrats calling for the president to be impeached or or basically making a lot of noise and needlessly so? Absolutely, and I don't think it's helping the situation. Do I think that? That there needs to be just as many voices on the Republican side and the Democratic side that are calling the president the task for his behavior and his non-compliance with what has here to been thought of as the law. Yeah, I think that they would be they've got a right to 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 their indignation. I really do. But Alan, it it seems to me like again I'll put pose the question to you: Do you get the impression that sometimes the Democrats are self-inflicting? this tension on their own that they're that they may be adding fuel to the fire almost well they add fuel to the fire the question is and i think ken was touching on this what, is it justified what, what's, yeah what's their justification for, for doing it I, I think that with regard to all these subpoenas these and and discussions about the invocation of what's what's referred to as executive privilege something that's not all that clear in the law um, but it's a, it's a concept that, that presidents should have the ability to get private, confidential advice from the people in, around them, and close to them. 
and that when somebody tries to dig into what kinds of advice they were given with the private conversations, a president has the has, has historically had the ability, the power to say, I'm going to invoke executive privilege. You cannot ask this staff person of mine about that particular stuff. And as long as it didn't have anything to do with breaking the law, which is an interesting sidebar question, um, there's there's been some basic respect for that. The, but the it, pro- let me just jump in real quick, because pro- one of the problems that we have is, is that executive privilege, there's no real true definition of what executive privilege is, and there's not exactly precedence establishing what can be covered. Which Under it, exactly executive privilege, which which was what I was trying to say that it's not that clear. The, the the principle is one thing; what what the exact ground rules are is another. It looks like it's going to get tested in the court, um, and and the president wants delay, so delay works in his favor, whatever the ultimate outcome uh, might be. Having said that, the 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 Democrats are finding themselves sort of trapped in a situation on a bunch of subject matter around which we waited for two years for for a report from the special counsel. The Democrats had very high expectations for what was going to be in there, um, thinking that it was a it was a, a roadmap to uh, to removal of the president, and it wasn't. And then they started arguing sidebar issues. They started attacking Attorney General Barr because they couldn't get their hands on the president. Um, uh, and and now we're going there. There's there's a, a, an effort to subpoena uh, the president's son, Donald Trump Jr. Now, as you pointed out, that that's a Republican initiative. It's not a Republican initiative. Excuse me, Justin. In the Senate. In the Senate. It is a bipartisan committee. The chairman and the co-chair, Mark Warner, uh, 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 Senator Burr from North Carolina is the Republican. Senator Warner from Virginia is the Democrat. They work hand in hand. They work together. They jointly decide, jointly decide. It's not the way the House works, where it's my way or the highway, whichever party is in power. In the Senate side, they work jointly together. Senator Burr, I mean, arguably, Senator Burr could, as chairman, take chairman privilege and say, "Look, no, I dis- he cannot. He cannot and would not. He would not. Is, he, is that is, just protocol, or that, is that that's rule? the way the Intelligence Committee functions? Okay, okay. It's, it 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 is always functioned that way. If he tried to do that, it would blow up the whole history of how that committee operates. That's something that we've talked about in the past. Right. What a disaster the House committee is and how it it is so different from how the Senate operates. So okay. the Bur, Senator Burr has annoyed some of his Republican colleagues because they thought we're trying to kill this thing and say it's over and now what? You're 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 issuing a subpoena. Well, we can talk about what we think that subpoena is about. Um, they spent a bunch of hours with Donald Trump Jr. Then they talked to a lot of other people. Then they got the Mueller report, and there appears to be a conflict between what they heard from Donald Trump Jr. And what was actually in the report. And what they've heard from others right. and and the report itself. And they're, trying, and they're trying to clear that up. They were supposedly on the verge 
of having a, a, a scheduled conversation with uh, Trump Jr. One got canceled and then uh, it postponed. And then the next time it happened, the committee finally decided to issue a subpoena. Well, that was raising the, the stakes and raising the ante. And we're, we're, we're hearing all about that. That one could still get resolved with, with some kind of a private meeting. I don't know. We've got we've also got we've also got Senator Lindsey Graham initially saying, ignore the subpoena. And then saying, "Fine, go talk to him and, and, and plead the they're, fifth." But they're not talking. I mean, they're now talking, execu- invoking executive privilege for Donald Trump Jr. Mm-hmm. Nope, nope. They, they have not. Nope. They have not nope. mentioned that at all. There is no executive privilege invocable for a non-employee. Executive privilege is for what presidents do with their their close advisors. Right. No, no, I get that. He can't they, vote executive privilege on something he said to a son, a neighbor, an old friend. He can beg them not to talk. They can take the fifth. Take they the can fifth. they can refuse. But there's there there is no but executive it, privilege. Executive so privilege has to do with at, with employees of the government, this advisors to, to the but president. But this goes back to the point that we made earlier. Is that it hasn't been tried. Do you not think that Donald Trump and Donald Trump Jr. will not try invoking executive privilege? I don't think I don't expect that because it's just no, it's absurd on its face. Executive privilege has always talked about advice from paid advisors, not informal friends, not family members, people on the staff, people on the payroll. So so Ivanka, she could invoke executive privilege? She's an employee of of the administration. She can't invoke it. The, only the president can invoke it. R- right, but they can. He could inv- he could invoke executive privilege on his daughter, on or his, his son in law, right. because they are employees. Even though, as I understand it, they're paid one dollar or something. But but they're employees with 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 security clearances. But I, I go back offices, to the original. I go back to my original question. You do not think that this administration would push the limits to see what they can get away with? Well, no, no, but no, that wasn't your original question. Your original question was, would they invoke executive privilege on Donald Trump Jr.'s subpoena? And I say, no, he's not an employee. You, but you, you agree with this, Alan? Alan, Admiral. Uh, I think they'll try it. I think they'll try it. I, I, I think, I think both you, you and Alan are right. I I think Alan is absolutely correct that uh, that Donald Trump Jr. is in no place because he's not an employee of the of the of the uh, the federal government or the administration. uh, Can an executive privilege claim legally uh, uh, give him any cover? That does not mean that Donald Trump won't try it because you know we we have seen so far that the president. Um, has either little respect for or little knowledge of or both of the Constitution. I, I just I, – I, I, my bet, I would put money. Oh. You want to bet? Oh, all right, okay. Bet, all right, you want to take this bet? Sure. A dollar. But, I, I will bet you a dollar right here on the air. We've got witnesses, okay? Uh, I'll bet you a dollar right now that the administration will try and call executive privilege on Donald Trump Jr. Okay. I think uh, th- I think they will. Uh, okay. I, First of all, the they it's only the president who invokes. When but I say that, yeah, but, but all we can be we we can be more expansive. Fine, done. Okay, done. A buck, a, a buck, a and, buck. And, and, uh, and we will know, we will know in the next week or two. Well, uh, so Eric, monitor they, they, that, and they, then you they, tweet it when somebody wins. They've they've got 
it, it's. I mean, Lindsey Lindsey Graham has provided his own legal counsel here. Just don't show up, ignore the subpoena, let him. Let <laughs> that, him do, yeah, that's or a, take the fifth. That's a so real good idea. Those are options that are that that make more it, sense to me than than the president invoking executive privilege on, on, on somebody who's not an employee. <laughs> an employee? Yeah. Well, again, so, the, the, we've seen stranger I, things happen. But as we've can, seen stranger things we happen. Have, uh, it, it's it's you know one has to be careful betting. Against the president in a way that that he could right. never do it or consider it, but in this case, there are better options for we, Donald Jr. While we were gone, we saw a lot of drama. We we saw uh, Bill Barr, the Attorney General, uh, give pretty. I, I, I wouldn't know how to describe it. That's called a lie. Well, no, he, he gave he gave testimony in front of. <laughs> he lied. He, he, well. He, he he was under not oath. in everybody's eyes. Not, not in everybody's eyes, exactly. Well, uh, but then and then afterwards, well. he just didn't show up for another House committee meeting. Uh, there's now talk that the president's invoking executive privilege on everybody with the term Esquire after their name, including Don McGahn, uh, Bill Barr, the Attorney General, uh, and several other legal advisors that he has. The question now is. Uh, did Don McGahn give up his exec? Did he? Did did, did can the president invoke executive privilege on Don McGahn as a result of him meeting with Mueller as part of the investigation? That's a, a good question for a, a court a, for a court to decide. Yeah. And I think it will probably end up being a court that, that decided. You've heard me in, at this table weeks ago say that the president's mistake with regard to McGahn was to give him permission in the first place to, to go talk to Mueller. He spent something like 30 hours with Mueller. He covered all kinds of stuff. I think his name is the name that comes up in that report more than any other person because he had so much information and he would have a meeting and he'd go debrief with an assistant who would take notes, prompting the famous comments that the president made about who has a lawyer who takes notes? Um, and the answer from McGahn being people who have a real lawyer. Um, but, but, what 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 we're seeing what we're seeing here is after the fact if you will after the after the horse has left the barn trying to say okay now you can no longer you you congress can no longer right. talk not no longer you can't talk period to McGann, who's no longer an employee that's fair enough because it's talking about things that were that were said while, while he was White while, House counsel, while he was White House counsel, while he was serving the president, there's an there's an enormous amount of information, obviously, in the Mueller report. There's also backup stuff that the the Congress is trying to get. The, the sorry, I have to laugh. The one point three million pages of documents that Mueller got <laughs> that the Congress says we, we want, want all it. your evidence. We, we want, want it. it all. Um, we don't want to read the report. God forbid. We only want to read the the bar four page letter and complain about it, but we do want that one point three million pages. Admiral Ken, did did Bill Barr do himself any favors or any damage by basically saying, "Look, I'm not talking to y'all. Have a nice day. You want me? Come I, I, find me." I, I, I think he I think he's damaged himself. I really do. Um, you know, Alan. You know, he he's been around this game longer than me, and I'd be very curious to hear what he thinks about this. But you know. I'm not a I'm not a lawyer, um, you know, and and nor have I ever played one on TV or after sleeping in a Holiday Inn Express. Um, 
but you know, I just know what feels right and, and, and what feels wrong. And I think if you know, in in my my conversations with you know other people who don't live inside the Beltway, uh, who are looking at this, there are two schools of thought. Uh, number one, uh, uh, the, the Attorney General has 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 soiled himself uh, amazingly and is doing great damage to his reputation and to. Uh, the credibility of the House to be able to to call for witnesses and and uh, the, the that call be respected. And then two, um, this is furtherance of the of the witch hunt, and that uh, people are tired of you know, of, the, of the investigations, and now they can't get the president, so they're going up the bar. There is very little in between. There's very little in between, and by and large, most of the folks who feel uh, the way that I described in, in the latter description. Uh, most of them represent that uh, fall into that 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 thirty percent category that I I believe quite frankly would support the president if he shot somebody in the face in Times Square. You agree with that? Alan? No, I don't. Why? I I, I, I mean I, I I certainly agree that the people that would 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 support the president no matter what uh, have have the have the 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 view of Barr that he could do no wrong, but there is a middle ground which I think I occupy, which is not the let's de- we can't get to the president let's destroy Barr let's grab every opportunity we have the four page letter the way it was the the way it was uh, talked about in the press and the way it was exaggerated and mischaracterized by the president we'll blame that all on Barr he will become our our surrogate because we can't seem to lay a hand on uh, on the president and then when he came and when he came before. Uh, the the, uh, uh, the the committee to talk about uh, the, the the report and was asked in the house about wh- and this was the whole question about what he whether he did or didn't lie uh, he was asked whether um, he was aware that people and there had been press reports about this that there were people in the in the Mueller investigation on that that team who felt that that uh, there were problems in in his letter. And he said, um, and you have to look at the whole thing that he said. He didn't handle it as well as he might have, but it wasn't, in my mind, anywhere right. close to perjury, as people like to call it. He basically said, I haven't talked to those people. I right. don't know what they have said. He had talked to Mueller, and he knew that Mueller had, he had Mueller's letter, and he had spoken to Mueller. He didn't want to divulge that at, 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 that, at that earlier time, private communication and and apparently resolved because within a couple of weeks we had the full report, but and, but he also said in in his response to to Congressman Christ from uh, who'd, who'd raised this question, right, said, but I you know but but it, it's possible that there's some people who are concerned about how how the report. Uh, that there are those without he had sort of denied talking to any of the staff, which was a truism, right? Um, and and that there were some concerns about how how the, his report had been received. He was trying to be very sort of Clinton esque. He wasn't as as clean and crisp as he as, as he might have been. Right. But for me, that's not perjury. And so you know, was was he trying to be a little clever? <clears throat> Maybe. Maybe, but it was for for but, no particular the end. The, the, the Mueller letter was going to come as out. American, as Americans, we don't we don't want our attorney general to be cutesy. We yeah. want our attorney general to be straight up front and tell the truth and represent the people of the United States versus being the fine White House counsel. Fine, pull out his full statement. 
and tell me where the lie is, and we and and, and we can go. From I did there. not say he lied. So, I, I I did not say he lied. What I said was we don't want him. He was being a little too smug, a little too cute. Well, I don't for, know about smug and cute. I think he was not expecting the question. He thought about it. He's a pretty careful guy. He's he, been that, around this game for a while. He's thinking they've asked me if the, I if I'm aware of what these people think. I haven't talked the, to these the, people. I will tell I'm you right sure. now the Bill Barr that I saw two weeks ago. Is not the Bill Barr that I remember as Attorney General under the Bush administration. Well, I, I commend you for your memory. I don't remember him as Attorney General really? for the Bush administration. He's always had a great but, reputation but, in but, DOJ. Well, no, 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 I know, but that doesn't mean I remember him. Oh, that's true. Hold on, we got we got to go to a break. We well, got to go to a break, and we've got uh, Rich Rubino, uh, who is the author of American Politics on the Rocks. He's going to be joining us in the next segment. Uh, in fact, I think that might be him on the two on two line. That might be him. All right, we'll be back in about. Uh, what is that? Your favorite New Yorker. It's Sharma. <laughs> I just asked you if you were on the line. Good God. All right. Well, guess what? You're going to be on for the rest of the show. We'll be back here in two minutes, and Rich Robino will be joining us next segment. Stay tuned. Back from politics. My heart is aching because he's making a plaything of my devotion. That's the way I feel today. Without any reason or a word to say, that man turned his keys in what good is living? I'll soon be giving my body up to the ocean. That's the way I feel today. Because 
Cause he's making a plaything of my devotion That's the way I feel today Without any reason or a word to say That man turned his keys in and hit back and went away What good is living? I soon be giving my body up to the ocean That's the way I feel today Studio A in Podcast Village, Upper Georgetown, Washington, D.C. This is the best political talk show you've never heard of. It's Backroom Politics with your host and moderator, Justin Russell. And we are back for the best political talk show you've never heard of. And obviously joining me in studio, we've got Alan, we've got Admiral Ken. And uh, coming from out of the blue, nice of her to let us know, we've got Sharmila Chari, former... Hillary Clinton attorney in the great state of Ohio during the election campaign of 2016, which apparently if you ask the Trump administration, we're, she's still ticked off that Hillary lost. Sean, uh, it is good to have you back, sweetie. Thanks, guys. Good to be back. Uh, sweetie? Oh, I've called her that before. <laughs> she knows that. It's not condescending. Good Lord. Uh, I'm thrilled Sharmila is back. And as far as I'm concerned, Sharmila, you can just show up and there's a seat. There's a there's a phone. There's a voice I'm so glad, for I, you. I am so glad. Alan, I am so glad that. Chivalry and bipartisanship is dead. Oh, good Lord. Hey, I Hillary. Just call, I, I, I just wanted to call me, sweetie. I, I, I've done that before. I've done that before. You know I have. Good Lord. Uh, hey, since we have Sharmila on, uh, I have to ask two questions. First of all, Sharmila, uh, do you have your bucket of Kentucky Fried Chicken? Well, I'm a vegetarian, so no. Okay, so then that answers that question. So much for your Christmas gift card. Uh, the other question is, I want to ask you the question that I ask... The two moderates, or at least the one moderate Republican and the rhino, in the other hand, uh, are the Democrats overplaying their hand right now with this whole divisiveness between uh, the Capitol and the White House? Um, you know, I think the Democrats are constantly in danger of overplaying their own hand. That being said, uh, the Trump administration never wants the Democrats to only look like the fools for too long, so... Before long, they will sacrifice. They sacrifice whatever moral high ground they manage to attain when the Democrats do overreach. Um, I think you know. I, I caught the tail end of your discussion earlier about Attorney General Barr and his testimony to the Senate, and I, I tend to agree with you, Justin, that I think you know one of the issues is that yes, you know, of course, Barr is an is an official of you know a Republican administration. But at the same time, we do, we as a people do expect a higher standard from our attorney general, and we expect him to be someone who, at the very least, respects the trappings of the law. So for him to completely ignore a subpoena and, you know, a request to in appear in front of the Senate panel just sort of really, I think, injected a dose of partisanship into 
you know, an office where you don't often see it. And that's not to say that other attorneys general have not been partisan in the past or have not, you know, supported the partisan agenda of the presidents they served under. But I think you'd be hard pressed to remember a past attorney general who would deliberately ignore a subpoena like that. I think that perhaps they might have come and, you know, claimed, you know, you know, claimed executive privilege or not maybe answered questions to the full satisfaction of the panel, but I don't think they would have ignored one. Alan Moore. And how, and how, oh, oh, and oh, how. Hold on, hold on, Admiral Ken. Let me go to Alan Moore first because he's got a comment regarding that statement that Charmler just made. Go ahead. Yeah, so so first of all, it, it was the House that thought they were going to get him. Um, and, and then a day after he was in the Senate, when it got contentious, um, he said, well, I am not going to the House next week. Um, and it looked like it was connected, but in fact, there had been conversations for some time between the Attorney General and the House. And the House committee wanted not only to have the members question uh, Attorney General Barr, but they also wanted some staff to, uh, to question Attorney General Barr. I'm not saying that's never been done, but... I don't remember it ever being done. It certainly never happened in the Senate when I was there that even even a witness who was simply an expert witness, much less a cabinet member, much less the attorney general, would not be subject to questions from staff. It's just kind of a stature thing. And and what this what the House was trying to do was to put him in front of a couple of people, one a sort of career prosecutor type, and the other the former ethics senior ethics official of the Obama administration, who's been writing a lot in the last two years about ethical shortcomings of this administration. And 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 Barr said, I'm not coming up to be questioned by them. I'll talk to you guys. You can set your ground rules, Republican, Democrat, back and forth. I'm not coming if if you're going to set that up. It's not how it's normally done, and it's not what I'm going to do. And but it, because they were connected in time, it made it sound like he was reacting to tough treatment um, with the the day before. Right. And I, I want to keep this discussion going, but I also want to bring in. Uh, he is the uh, he's a contributing writer to Huffington Post. He's also the author of the recently published book American Politics on the Rocks. Uh, he is, uh, the man we know is Richard Rubino. Mr. Rubino, thank you for joining us. Oh, you're welcome. Glad to be here. Oh, fantastic. Fantastic. Hey, you know, uh, before we get into the book, cause I want to talk to you about the, this book, fantastic, uh, resource. I, I want to ask you, I want to bring you into this discussion that we're having regarding the, the tension that's going on between the White House and Capitol Hill. And it seems to be sparked by uh, the appearance and then the non-appearance of Attorney General Bill Barr. Uh, what What's your take on how Barr has how he presented himself in front of the committee during the hearing that he did attend and then his subsequent actions afterward? Uh, I think it's actually kind of mind-boggling, I guess, is what comes to my mind, because, remember, Barr had a pretty stellar reputation going back to his time in the George H.W. Bush administration. Right. Of course, George H.W. Bush was a vociferous opponent of Donald Trump. Right. Um, and then, first of all, just the fact that, you know, why he would take the job in the Trump administration in the first place, and then once he did take the job as the same, the same post attorney general in the Trump administration, 
why is he willing to besmirch his reputation and go down in history as the attorney general who essentially is at least seen, rightly or wrongly, as a defender of Donald Trump and as somebody who's seen more or less as somebody who's acted as his attorney as opposed to an impartial arbiter in terms of being an attorney general. I just don't see what is in it for him to have taken the position in the first place, and then the fact that he's willing to go through this in a Democratic Congress, knowing beforehand that the, that the House of Representatives is controlled by a different, by a different um, party, and now the fact that he's willing to go through this and potentially going through contempt, and there's even some members like Seth Mullen calling for impeachment, um, I just don't, I, it's just mind-boggling to me that he would go through this. Is, 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 this, is it fair to say, or is it unfair to say, that uh, Bill Barr has either uh, become the White House counsel rather than the attorney general or has blurred the lines between the acting as attorney general and White House counsel? Yeah, I think he has kind of blurred the lines in many respects. I guess the White House counsel, too, you know, is not is not necessarily serve the president as do most public officials. I guess they all they all serve the country, but the White House counsel is usually seen as somebody who is a de facto president, you know, free attorney for the president. But um, you know, I just go back, for example, to Janet Reno during the Clinton administration, and Janet Reno kept on appointing independent counsels to different investigations. And Bill Clinton was certainly against it, but then she ended up getting praise from folks like, you know, Senator Orrin Hatch from Utah, for example. And there was nothing that Clinton could do because she was, you know, a cabinet. She was a cabinet official, but she was acting on her own. And it's just kind of different how what's 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 occurring here. Um, but you know, I mean, attorney generals, I guess they do serve at the. I mean, they are appointed by a certain president, so obviously they're going to be um, certain. There's going to be a certain fidelity to that president. But I just think this has kind of gone one step to the extreme. Is is it uh, is it expected, or do you find it unusual that uh, the president is invoking executive privilege the way he is, as broadly as he is, and as uh, we said earlier in the show, I mean, this is obviously a setup for a gun battle inside the Supreme Court. Yeah, and you know, because it's Donald Trump, and because Donald Trump is so unorthodox. Um, I would say I, I'm not necessarily surprised because I think Donald Trump will essentially go to any extreme to accomplish what he what he's trying to accomplish. What his advisors, what Nick Mulvaney and all these other people are telling him, my guess is they're telling him not. They're probably telling him not to do this. You know, the, the you know if there is an impropriety, you sometimes it's the appearance of an impropriety that becomes problematic. People are going to say they're going to just like they did with Nixon, for example, or with Bill Clinton during the Monica Lewinsky scandal. Why are you doing this? Why not just come clean? You know, if there's nothing there, why try to why why try to hide this? And you know, may, that may may be unfair um, if there is no impropriety, but people are going to see an impropriety here, so it could it could certainly hinder him in that respect. Alan Moore, you look like you're about to oh, be very prolific. No, no, yeah. no. I'm 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 simply reflecting all on all of this. I. Uh, we have in the attorney general, and and and, and he just uh, suggested this. We, we've in the role of the attorney general, we've got this fundamental conflict. You've got the chief law enforcement uh, officer in the entire United States that oversees the entire Justice Department, FBI, and so on. And you also have a person who's one of the typically, uh, not always, not always, but but one of the key advisors to the president. And we go back to. You know, we hear about about Janet Reno, who who didn't fit the mold and who invoked a law that was tossed, 
We don't have an independent counsel law anymore because the, the, the that ended the, after the, Ken Starr. The, the president yeah. concluded, and and the Congress agreed that it was a, that it was a bad law. It was too much independent, non 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 overseeable action, which is why we have a special counsel law, which is much more uh, circumscribed, which was the, the the what what Bob Mueller had. But historically, John Kennedy's brother, <laughs> Bobby, was 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 his attorney general. Um, Nixon had his 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 longtime friend John Mitchell. Ronald. Reagan had his personal lawyer, William French Smith from Los Angeles as attorney general. Um, you 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 have these you put these guys out on this sort of tightrope and and you have Bill Barr who thinks I've done this before, I think I can do this again and he wasn't ready for for Trump time um, where he was going to be uh, to be tested. I mean I, I I have some disagreements with the, the this this condemnation of Barr and what was he thinking? And oh my God, he's ruined uh, his reputation. I'm not buying all of that. Even though I think he, I think he made some mistakes, but they weren't in terms of how he's presented himself on a few issues that could have avoided some problems. But I don't. But I don't. You know, this talk about impeachment or or the thing you were referring to, Justin of. Of this Tennessee congressman showing up at the hearing, they knew Barr wasn't oh, coming the props. to with, yeah. with a oh, with, yeah. with, with a with a bucket of Kentucky Fried Chicken makes them look like idiots. Yeah. It's like, what's he doing? What's this? He he can get on the news, but 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 I don't think it it makes the point that that they're trying to make. And 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 uh, Rich Rubino, historically, I, I mean, going back to your books, which I want to touch on in a second. Uh, you are a student of American and political history. Is there any political precedence for the type of animosity that we're seeing between the White House and Congress now? And is there any history of the role of the attorney general being this, I guess for lack of a better term, convoluted? Well, first of all, I just say in terms of um, the congressman is Cohen, and he's from uh, Tennessee. Right. And I think that a lot of that was for domestic consumption. He comes from a very Democratic constituency in Tennessee around the Memphis area. And every time that he goes out there and does that, you know, I'm sure his constituents are absolutely applauding. So I think there's a little bit of self-interest in that. But <laughs> um, in terms of past precedents, um, I mean, there's always been the issue of kind of an equilibrium between the president and the Congress. But I can't think of it where it's where, – I can't think of it where it's been specifically – um, over an issue about the over an issue about the president, other than maybe perhaps there was certainly Teapot Dome and then there was certainly Watergate. Um, I mean that's the obvious example going back to 1974 um, when Richard Nixon was in and he essentially said that you know he was trying to he was trying to withhold the tapes from coming out and eventually the Supreme Court with some Democrats some Republicans on it ruled nine to nothing that he had to release the tapes and that was a, that was that was the end of his presidency. But um, usually when you think of, you know, conflicts between the president and the Congress, usually I think of it more when a president, when a president and the Congress are of different parties like they are right now, for example. Um, just go back to, for example, during, the, during Kosovo, for example, when Bill Clinton um, supported, supported sending troops, in, or rather um, when he supported, you know, um, an air upon air war in Kosovo without necessarily can get it, without getting congressional declaration. Um, that was opposed by Tom DeLay. I remember a lot of them at United, a lot of Republicans in Congress and other issues when he, when he tried to go into when you know they're just the military conflicts in general. But I don't think you necessarily see it in terms of a constitutional conflict. That's kind of this um, fascinating. Wow. 
Uh, well, go ahead. Yeah, you don't want to. <laughs> you don't want to leave out the uh, Clinton impeachment. Uh, you don't want to leave out the the, the contempt citation uh, uh, against uh, Attorney General Holder uh, under Obama over over over, furious, over yeah. the arms deal, Fast and Furious. So yeah. so it's it, it's more in response to the question. It this one's different. But it's sort of same, same church, different pew, if you will. It, it's there, when you have uh, two different parties in power and you have major uh, challenges, be they international, domestic, partisanship, uh, exerting its ugly head, um, you can get into some really, really ugly messes. Um, I, I would just say one other thing that I just thought of would have been uh, President Ford after uh, the, when the U.S. Was, when it was about to pull out of Vietnam – and he wanted to send more. He wanted to help to aid, um, you know, Laos and Cambodia. And the Democratic Congress would not let him do it. He later said that was the saddest day of his presidency when he saw the helicopters leaving Vietnam and he saw the troops leaving. He wanted to put more money into it. That's one example I could think of. Right, right, right. Uh, let's talk about your your book for a second, uh, Mr. Rabino. Let's look at uh, the title of the book is American Politics on the Rocks. Uh, I have. You know, being a a wonk of politics, this is like a holy grail <laughs> of political information. Uh, and and this is not your first book of political data. Where did you get the spark to do these books? You know, it's interesting. I don't know where it came from, um, but I've had a congenital interest in this stuff. And growing up, I was again, I was just a. Um, an inveterate C-SPAN watcher, believe it or not. You know, once cable, once I got cable, which I, when I was about 11 or 12 years old, I would start watching Congress. I remember watching special order speeches where the congressman would speak to empty chambers. And I was always interested in presidential trivia, but I kind of read just about every presidential trivia book. So I was looking for a book that was more or less about politics in general, not just presidents. And the only things I could find were presidential trivia books. And the only presidential trivia books that I could find were kind of one-liners, two, you know, a couple sentences, who was the only president, just shooting a man, and then there'd be an answer, Andrew Jackson. And it kind of gave me the impetus that I said, why don't I write a book that would be about political, interesting, interesting political history, but make it kind of a, you know, a paragraph long, put a picture in. So my first book was about little-known facts in American politics. And then I did a book tour, and most of the questions that I were asked were about some of the funny quotes. So that precipitated my second book, which is about political, um, which was funny political culture in American history. Then I was working for a group called National Popular Vote after that. So I wrote a book about the Electoral College defending the National Popular Vote Plan. And then after that, I decided that I would write a book that was more or less interesting political stories from along the way. And it's fascinating because every time I think of a story and I have to go and verify it, and so it's kind of in the back of my head, you always find two or three other things that are just as interesting. You know, you go back to the primary sources. Um, and then you find two or three other little articles there, and you say, wow, that's even more fascinating, and then you just keep putting more and more of them in. You, you know, going through your book and, and then also being you know, the one Republican that's a huge fan of Henry S. Truman, uh, you bring up some facts and some quotes from Henry S. Truman. He was a funny guy, and I don't think a lot of Americans appreciate the dry sense of humor that Harry Truman had while he was president. It probably kept him sane a lot of the time. Oh, no. Oh, absolutely. You know, Truman was, um, you know, he came in in 1945. He was kind of an obscure senator from Missouri who um, became vice president and then after Roosevelt died. Yeah, he was. When he, you know, when, he came in, when he came into the Senate after a couple of years, he said, you know, when I first got to the Senate, I couldn't believe I got here. 
And he said, then, I, then a couple years later, I start wondering why everyone else got here. He had a great sense of humor, and he, one of his vociferous opponents, for example, he really went after people. He used to say that Dwight Eisenhower doesn't know more about, anybody, more about politics than a pig knows about Sunday, for example. <laughs> or he'd go after Richard Nixon, who he absolutely just despised Richard Nixon. And he used to say that Richard Nixon is such a good liar. If he were to ever to tell the truth, he would then say he would then he would then lie just to, just to, just to essentially make up for telling the truth. Um, he was an interesting guy. He was also was fascinating in 1960 with Harry Truman um, when John F. Kennedy was running. He actually held a press conference at the convention, and he said that John F. Kennedy had rose into the heights of rose into political heights too fast. And he said, you know, you, this is not your time, essentially. And he was supporting um, Stu Symington, the senator from Missouri. And he said if Stu Symington does not get the nomination, he doesn't necessarily um, have, have an alternative. But he later became an ally of John F. Kennedy, then an ally of Lyndon Johnson. And, um, yeah, I know he, he was very fascinating. You know, left in 1953 with a 20, 22% job approval rating. Um, they call you know he was part of the reason that the Democratic Party lost in 1952 was the Korea communism and corruption, and that was what the Eisenhower administration ran against Adlai Stevenson, the governor of Illinois. Right. So he was really a pariah for the Democratic Party when he left office, but then he became extremely popular once he left you know 10, 15 years later and became an asset for the Democratic Party, and now he's rated the fifth or sixth uh, greatest president in American history. Really, kind of one of those real turnarounds, and it's interesting every time a president runs. That's losing. They always try to say that I'm going to. Then that's going to be like Harry Truman because Truman was supposed to lose. He had Strom Thurmond, the segregationist, who had split off the Democrat, the conservative Democrats. Henry Wallace, the liberal Democrat, had split off from the liberal. Had split off the liberal Democrats, and so it was Truman against against Thomas E. Dewey. And Dewey, the governor of New York, ran a very. Um, ran a very cautious campaign. He wouldn't say anything. He would say, you know, he would say, I, I, I wish you the best, and he would give very um, vicissitudinous speeches. And as a result of that, you know, Truman campaigned vociferously and ended up actually, ended up actually beating Dewey. No one could believe it the next day because when it predicted that Truman was going to lose. So George right. H. W. Bush, for example, in '92, kept saying, "I'm going to be just like Harry Truman," but of course he wasn't. You know, so yeah, that's true. Unfortunately, uh, the, <laughs> the, I've always made the statement, and and I love your take on this. That uh, I've always said that history, the way history looks at Harry Truman today. I think history is going to revisit and relook at George W. Bush the same way. He was kind of run out of town on a rail, not really high popular ratings. But the more and more we dig on it and the more and more we learn and the more and more he's out of office, the more and more there's a popularity and appreciation for the job he did. Is that accurate? Uh, well, I mean, it's not just it's not my opinion. Uh, at least the way I see at least the way I see it, I actually think it's interesting you bring those two together because George W. Bush, that was one of his heroes, was Harry Truman. He's read about six or seven books on him. I know that. And I think that part of the when he came, remember, when he ran for president in 2000, he was not an interventionist. He talked about a more humble foreign policy. John McCain was the interventionist. And all the neoconservatives, Bill Crystal, a lot of those types of folks were supporting more McCain over Bush. And Bush basically governed that way up until 9-11. And then after 9-11, he became an interventionist. And he made the decision to go into Iraq. Um, I, at least in my, at least, and this is just my opinion here. I think that was a, um, you know, I thought that I thought that was a strategic blunder, and I think it created a hornet's nest in the Middle East. And I think that, um, 
I, th- I think that he will be that he will not be remembered fondly. I think what he wanted to have happen was he thought it would be like it would there would be it would spread like wildfires. Iraq would become a democratic republic like the United States, and then it would spread to Iran. It would spread to the Muslim world, and eventually it would get to China. And then it was kind of like when Immanuel Kant said in 1794, he talked about bringing perpetual war for perpetual peace. Um, I think he thought that it would somehow relate that it would somehow bring about a peaceful world because every you know every country would be democratic and there's a democratic peace theory and they'd all be trading with each other so they'd have self-interest with each other. But at least what I see is I think Iraq then be, Iraq essentially became a um, you know a, 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 a now you have a, you have a Shia a Shia predominantly Shia-led government which is now can be an ally of Iran and I think that there's a lot of animosity toward the U.S. not only for that but also for the sanctions. So I think that I don't think he'll be remembered fondly in history. But you you bring up Iran is. is are we starting to see history repeat itself with the actions of the Trump administration recently by putting uh, so? you, I'm sorry how so uh there's there's a large scale movement there was talk but the president walked it back today talk about 125,000 troops oh, going yeah, into the Middle yeah. East yeah. uh deploying a carrier group an active carrier group into uh the, the Suez and the Gulf it, to me it seems like there's a ramp up to history repeating itself in that same region not that long ago. Well, I would just say at least this is my take on Iran. I might be going a little bit tangentially here, but I think it was another the biggest mistake that Eisenhower made, and this was Eisenhower as well as Churchill in England, is when President Mo, when Mohammad Mossadegh, who was democratically elected, nationalized the oil fields. They supported a they supported an internal coup in Iran, which brought the Shah to power. And then the Shah was in power until you know the, until the Ayatollah Khomeini came in and dislodged him, and then I think that created a lot of enmity toward the United States, um, and then then uh, toward the United States, and eventually there was you know the hostage crisis, and then in the 80s I think that this, the U.S. support for Iraq in the Iraq in the Iraq Iran war, um, you know how do you choose a side there? I don't think that helped, and then I think certainly the, the sanctions in Iraq have also I think um, the economic sanctions have created a real visceral reaction to the United States, so. I don't think being at confrontation with Iran is necessarily something that's going to help the U.S., but that being said, I think that you know, there was an olive branch brought by, brought by President Khatami in 1998 to Bill Clinton and then later to George W. Bush after you know, when there were more moderate leaders, even though – I mean, I'm not – when there were more moderate leaders as president of Iran, it left olive branches to potentially negotiate with the United States and never really quite happened. But I don't think it's a country that you want to have a conflict with. I don't think there's any appetite in the United States, really, for a conflict with Iran. Right. Uh, we've got a couple of minutes left in the show, but I, I would be remiss if I didn't ask the uh, stupid AM talk show questions, such as this book that you have of uh, political facts. I am I am very curious to find out what is this? What is this? The oddest or strangest fact you came across writing this book? <laughs> yeah, it's interesting because, well, here's one that I think here's one that I think is fascinating. Is if you go back to the under prior to the United States Constitution, there was the Articles of Confederation, Perpetual Union, right. where the government was extremely limited. You needed 13 states to raise taxes, for example, and they actually had an office under that, and it was called the Office of Pre- the Office of Co- President of Congress Assembled. And John Hansen was was the first president under that that he was he was he wasn't called the president of the United States and he didn't have the executive duties that a president would have today. He was more like a member of parliament almost who serves as prime minister. But he at any rate he was he, he had the office of president. He'd approved the official seal. And George Washington wrote him a letter saying that I congratulate you on being appointed to, to the highest seat of our government. 
And so some people can argue, including John Hansen's descendants, that John Hansen should actually be considered the first president of the United States. Now, there's some controversy there, but I just found that um, I find that fascinating because, you know, you go back, and there's so many of these presidents we've never heard of, but there was a completely different regime out of the Articles of Confederation or Petro Union, and so many people have just completely blacked it out or forgotten that that was part of our history. And that's fantastic. And, and, and by the way, uh, our producer, Eric, that's why we have guests. That, that's why we put guests. Keep, keep that in mind. Uh, Alan Moore, you got a comment real quick? Yeah, so I, I'm intrigued with the title of your book because it, it, there's a potential for two meanings. Obviously, the on the rocks, the, the ship that crashes uh, in the storm, and then, of course, the... the Jack the, Daniels the, version? The Jack Daniels uh, on the rocks, uh, and, and we've, we've had... Not our, a sponsor, by the way. Obviously, in our history, uh, uh, and I, I'm guessing in your books, uh, examples that would support both. I wanted to say just a word about past presidents. Um, we 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 do reassess them. We we hopefully have some humility in in, in thinking. Your your comment about about Truman is 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 really interesting. When Reagan left office, um, he was not nearly as popular then as he became later. Um, uh, Bill Clinton was extremely popular when he yep. left, and he became a huge albatross around his wife's neck in the election. With regard to to to, to President Bush, I think that that history is looking more kindly on him now than it did then, partly because of the contrast. Uh, with President Trump. I don't think he was as delusional as Richard suggests about what he thought going into Iraq was going to do and what it was the sort of positive domino effect that might occur. I don't think he he really had those thoughts. But he will never, I do agree with with you on this, he will never escape Iraq. So no matter, and and even though (laughs) the likes of Hillary Clinton, John Kerry, and Joe Biden all voted to go into Iraq based on the same evidence that the president was using, he was president. He took the lead. He would have gotten most of the credit had it gone a different way. And 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 he is going to be uh, he's going to be stuck with the blame. Right. And that's and that's how it is. Yeah. You know, I'll just say one more thing on that. What I always find fascinating is because people forget now, but Al Gore was very hawkish on foreign policy. True. He had voted True. for the for the first Gulf War. He was big on NATO expansion. He was a hawk going into Bosnia, a hawk going into Kosovo. You look at his past and you wonder if Al Gore would have done the same thing as George W. Bush. He became more of a dove um, after, you know, after the fact and certainly eventually opposed the Iraq war. But I wonder if the Al Gore, who, would, who was a senator from Tennessee and was a vice president under Clinton, if that Al Gore had been elected in 2000, I wonder if he would have done the same thing. I mean, history will never know. But He became a dove, basically. Your, he had no, the no, luxury. But, but he had what's the your luxury. conclusion? I'm curious what you, what you think he would have done. I think he would have probably gone into Iraq. I do. So I, think I do, too. People, I agree with you. Yeah. I think yeah. people forget right. how much – I mean, go back to the Middle East, for, even in the Middle East, for example. When he, got, when he was running in 1988, he was really the last, I think, conservative – I mean, really conservative Democrat. Look at what his platform was that ran for president as a conservative Democrat and got all, most of his support from white people in the South. Right. Um, you know, he, he, he was a lot more conservative than people, I think, made him out to, than he became after the presidency. He really had – he lurched to the left about beginning about a year afterward, and he just continued moving to the left. But I do think that the Al Gore of 2001, I think he would have been very much a hawk in Afghanistan. Right. I think he probably would have gone into Iraq, too. But, of course, you know, that's a – you know, it's a non-entity because he, because he never he never assumed the office. But I do think he would have gone in, yes. Yeah. Well, listen, uh, Richard Rubino, author of – American Politics on the Rocks, uh, available on Amazon and in bookstores? Absolutely. Oh, fantastic. Richard, I I can't tell you how much we loved having you. I hope you'll join us again on the show at some point. (laughs) 
Anytime, I'd love to. Uh, right, I hope you can have something on the rocks uh, to celebrate that new yeah, book. Yeah, Congratulations. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Fantastic. On behalf of Alan Moore, Admiral Ken, and Charma Charlie, who will be with us. The four of us will be back on for the next broadcast. I'm your host, moderator, Justin Russell. You can follow us on Twitter at Backroom Politic. You can follow us on Instagram. Right, Eric? Instagram, yes. Uh, thank you, Eric. Thank you, Rob the Engineer. Uh, oh, by the way, you can also see all the historical documents, backroompolitics.org. Have a great week. We'll talk to you later, America. Bye-bye.